0: year old with Welcome to the EMS Handout, your source for all things EMS. And now let's welcome to the show your hosts, the Bradley Dean, Eric McCullough, and David Blevins. Hello and welcome to another week of the EMS Handoff Podcast. I'm your host, David Blevins, along with my co-host from North Carolina, the Brad, the, the infamous, famous, wonderfully extraordinary Bradley Dean, who's hanging out at the North Carolina EMS Expo this week. Bradley Dean, how are you this week?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, it's a little rainy here. Good storm last night. But other than that, it's uh, still a beautiful day in North Carolina.
0: Well, unlike uh, our normal weeks with you that finds you out in the woods in the middle of those storms, uh you are in front of one of our awesome backdrops for any of us seeing this conference we've been doing uh doing these podcasts and he uh he's doing it up right uh this time. So, if you are interested in having the EMS handoff podcast uh, at your conference, let us know cuz that's what Bradley's doing. Tell us about the North Carolina EMS Expo and give them a shout out. So we're at
1: the North Carolina EMS Expo. This is the 50th anniversary of of the Expo. We've got some guests lined up this week. Uh, Kind of this evening, we've got one with us that was kind of a a spur of the moment. We were able to grab him before he takes off to another conference. Uh, We've got uh, Jason with us. We're going to introduce him in just a second. But uh, we've got some other guests that are going to be on uh, this week. Uh, And so you're going to see them in the coming weeks as we uh, post them as part of our podcast
0: all right well let's go ahead and before we introduce uh, mr brooks we're going to go ahead and give a shout out to our podcast partner the journal of emergency medical services we are your source for all things ems and the podcast first but gems has been an industry leader for many years so make sure and go by and check out their website at gems.com give them a shout out you can also see our fellow podcast hosts on the ems today podcast give them a shout out as well don't forget to subscribe rate and review but uh we're talking about the ems handoff today and so bradley dean let's go ahead and get into the introduction of our guest for this week
1: so today we've got uh, jason brooks with us from dt4 ems so i'm going to turn over and kind of let you give an
2: introduction to yourself all right well my name is jason brooks i'm the president ceo of dt4 ems DTFMS stands for Defensive Tactics for Escaping, Mitigating, and Surviving a Violent Encounter. Um, that is what our company is called. We put on the programs called Eve: Escaping Violent Encounters. We have two programs. We have the Escaping Violent Encounters for healthcare providers, as well as which is an in-hospital program, as well as our Escaping Violent Encounters for fire and EMS personnel, which is obviously are pre-hospital providers. We've been here this week. We put on a, a pre-con course uh, for the fire and EMS course, uh, this week.
1: So you just flew into North Carolina from, uh, what conference were we at before? Just came from FDIC to here. Okay. And you had a, you had a program
2: there and then you were doing one here. Yep. So, uh, we were out there, uh, we we're actually out there on the vendoring side, uh, for there. Um, part of that, we really flew from Denver to there to here. Um, we did speaking, uh, in Denver, um, FDIC for some vendoring and then put on a program here. Um, so yeah, we're literally hopping from from from, uh, from conference to conference again.
1: All right. So one one of the big things is you know a lot of people are probably sitting back watching this and they're going, why in the world do I even need to worry about this? You know they're they're always concerned about you know patients doing something or something happening and and they say, well you know I'll just take care of it myself. I've got something in my hand. I'll I'll be able to. I'll watch more with O2 bottle. Exactly. The general, the general, the general statement. give the big green pill, O2 therapy to the cranium, right? Right. All right. So, tell us, you know, a little bit about the statistics and why we really need to be concerned, and then why that would not work. Well,
2: first, I'll just talk about just statistics. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, healthcare providers are twenty two times more likely to be assaulted than the average healthcare worker. Twenty two times more likely. Uh, the unfortunate part is, is that we have a culture of Assaults are part of our job. That's what, what we say. Well, I don't know. I've, I've been a paramedic for uh, just over 25 years now, I guess. I've never seen that any of place I've ever worked where it said assaults were part of my job, especially criminal assaults. Uh, and the simple fact is it's not part of our job. And a criminal assault should be something that we actually, one, we have the right to defend ourselves, but we have to defend ourselves reasonably. And that's one of the biggest problems is healthcare providers don't understand what is considered reasonable in their use of force. Um, but with that being said is the simple fact is, is it happens more often than most of us want to talk about, or want to say that it happens. Um, and we need to understand the difference between a patient and an attacker because it's two different people, because, well, let me ask you a question. Could a Alzheimer's patient who has dementia reach out and try to smack you, grab you, punch you, pull you? Oh, sure.
0: Okay. I, I will go ahead. I'll go ahead and stop right there. I've used this example a couple of times. One of the most violent encounters that I had was a patient like that with my partner. It's the only time I've ever seen this individual who has a stature very similar to yours. Tell me to stop the truck and get the French language in the back of the truck with him because this 96 year old woman was assaulting him. Yeah. So in the same
2: aspect, do you have the right to defend yourself against this older, this elderly patient who has dementia? Yes, but probably not the same as something else. Well, so how about we give you skills that could work for either type of person, whether it's the elderly dementia patient or it's the drunk or drugged person who is trying to criminally assault you. Because we're the only profession in the world that has to determine patient or attacker in a split second of time. Think about it. If you worked at a big box store and somebody walked in and tried to assault you, Would you have to go, oh, my God, does this person, you know, have low blood sugar? Uh, That's why they're acting out. Do they have a head injury? Or would you just be able to defend yourself? No different than if you assaulted a police officer, they would just defend themselves. Well, we have to determine, well, why are they assaulting us? And respond reasonably for that person. So we need to give you something that, again, you can deploy in a split second time that would work for either that patient or that attacker because our goal is to escape the violent counter, not to submit, destroy, beat them up, it's to escape it. And that's that's what our goal should be. But the simple fact is, is the general public doesn't understand how often we get assaulted. When you say to somebody, you know, that doesn't work in healthcare, you know, oh my God, I got, I got assaulted again. They're like, who would assault you? Who would assault a paramedic, uh, an EMT, a nurse, a firefighter? Well, The simple fact is, is it's the dirty little secret to healthcare is assaults within healthcare, by far,
0: and it happens quite quite regularly. Well, you may you may mention the statistic there twenty two times more likely than even the healthcare sector. So, what other statistics do you have when it comes to those assaults? Maybe in just healthcare in general, and then how does that translate to figuring out what it takes to escape? that encounter
2: well so so the biggest thing is is that uh, a good 95 to 99 percent of, of our assaults are non-lethal encounters meaning that they are the being punched kicked, uh struck bitten things like that in nature so that's what we should be mostly preparing for there's a lot of of, of uh, conversation around healthcare right now of saying well, we should give paramedics or firefighters firearms is a way to defend themselves, which I'm not saying that that's a a right or a wrong answer. What I'm saying with this this number is, is if you give somebody just a firearm, it's kind of like the proverbial, uh, the only tool I have is a hammer. Pretty soon, everything looks like a nail, right? I guess if you look at it this way, it's no different than on your ambulance. If we took away every airway device in your ambulance, there's no more combi tubes, nasal cannulas, non-rebreathers, There's uh, no more ET tubes. The only thing you have to treat a difficulty breathing patient now is a surgical crike. Only one of two things are going to happen. One is you're going to get really good at crikes. Or number two is no one's going to have total breathing anymore. Because again, we have to give you tools to be able to handle all types of assaults. And since the biggest statistics of our assaults are non-lethal, we should probably start there. On top of that, if we start giving our our, our providers firearms, then we got to deal with things like loss of neutrality. Uh, we're already being, you know, dressing and looking more like cops because we're wearing, you know, bolt resistant, fast things of that nature. So, you know, now we give you a firearm, is that going to cause more loss of neutrality? That, that could be a big issue there uh, for that. So,
1: we, we've talked a little bit about the dementia patient let's talk about you know what do we need to train
2: for with some of these other patients well so the biggest thing is is first is recognizing the difference between a patient attacker so how do we know that we look at their intent take what the person says plus their actions will give you a reasonable belief of their intent so uh what is their intent that tells you exactly whether that's a patient or attacker so obviously if we have the confused person due to a medical emergency we'll uh, I would like to get rid of the term combative patient because the term combative patient is, is actually pretty damning for us as a career. Because if we label everybody as a combative patient, if it's an actual criminal assault and you go to court and you're talking in front of the jury saying, you know, the combative patient slapped me in the face, the combative patient uh, tried to choke me, the combative patient, all the jury keeps hearing is the word patient. And to them, a patient is somebody that we hold their hands, we sing kubaya, we make them better. So that is one of the things that that they don't understand is the fact that there's two different people there. So we need to, to recognize the difference between those two. Those are some of the things that we need to, to focus on. And if it is not an uncooperative patient, it's a criminal aggressor, that is someone who, again, our goal is to escape them, not take custody control, not beat them up, submit them, destroy them is to escape them and then press criminal charges against them. Because statistically, if I assault a healthcare provider and nothing happens to me, there's no no criminal charges filed, statistically, the next time I come into contact with another healthcare provider, I will assault them again. But this time it would be worse than the first time because there was no consequences and it just keeps building. Again, statistically, it's a small group, a number of people who want to assault us. They just keep doing it over and over again, making it worse. So we need to recognize the difference between that patient and that attacker. That's one of the biggest first things we need to train on is who's who. Now, when we talk about the next thing is, is what is a reasonable response? What is considered reasonable? Well, uh, let's look at recent news. Did anybody here just see the recent article of the six D.C. uh, firefighters who just got put on administrative leave uh, after their video came out? So one of the things we teach you in, your, in our program is the name DT for MS, that four in there actually has a meaning. There's four areas that you have to win in in every single patient encounter. We call this the mind, the street, the media, and the courts. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is winning the mind. That's understanding the difference between a patient and an attacker and understand what's reasonable at that time. When we talk about Uh, Talk about the street. That's the physical skills that work more often than not that are reasonable in application to escape the situation. Now, you notice I said work more often than not because nothing's 100%. If anybody ever tells you, oh, this skill is going to work 100% of the time, they're lying to you. There's no such thing. When we talk about the media, the media is broken up in two different parts, social media as well as mainstream media. The simple fact is that social media is so powerful today that Mainstream media reports on what's trending in social media every single day. Now, when we look at the media, how much of our day is caught on camera? All of it. Pretty much. About, they're, they're averaging about 95% of your days on, on camera now. And if it's not because it's on a security camera or a ring doorbell, a camera inside someone's house, what does every single person have in their pocket? A cell phone. And as soon as something happens, they pull that out and they start recording you. Well, when they started recording that, did they catch the first part of the action or just your response? Your response, right? So what happens if your response makes you look like you were the aggressor? Because they didn't see the whole part. Now let's refer back to the video that I just talked about for DC Fire DMS. Did we see the part in any of those uh, videos where the patient punched the uh, the firefighter? No. none of all. All they saw was the response, which don't get me wrong, in my opinion, that response was 100% not reasonable. Um, you can't beat the guy down and start kicking him with your steel-toed boots and stuff like that. But we didn't catch the first part, all right? Well, when we talk about media, is everybody's got social media. Everybody watches videos. Want to know what everybody else also has? An opinion. And so when they watch that, they look at it and they're like, oh my God, they're, they're guilty. Even though we don't know the whole story, they're guilty. We need to look at the whole story of that. The last thing you have to win in is the courts. The courts are broken up into three parts criminal civil court and a court of public opinion. Meaning, what does the general public think? What does your bosses think? Because can the court of public opinion persuade the court of law? It does every day, right? Every single day, because your court is made up of your peers. So uh when they watch these videos and they're like, "Oh my God, that they, they was so wrong! That they, they, they was egregious action that they did." Well, you lost in there. So you have to win in all four of these areas for every single violent encounter. And the issue is, is if you look at the DC fire video, technically they won their mind. They they determined that this guy was a, was an aggressor. Technically they won in the street. They they stopped the assault. They beat him up. They lost in the media because the. Uh, that was played on social media everywhere. mainstream media picked that up every night and they've already lost the court of public opinion because their bosses suspended them. And the patient, the former patient, the charges against him have already been dropped because the simple fact is, is their reaction was worse than what, what they could prove he did. So could this end up in a legal battle in court? I believe so. I believe it's going to, I believe that he's probably going to end up suing them. Um, That's going to be my guess. That's what's going to move to next. So, in every single patient encounter, you have to win in these four areas. If you lose in just one of these areas, you've lost in your entire encounter. So, we teach you how to win in all four of these areas in every single patient encounter because it puts you in the best position of defense for your actions.
1: So, let's talk a little bit more about a couple of things here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, you've got DT4 EMS. So, let's say that, you know, I've been, you know, studying martial arts for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got my black belt. You know, people think, oh, I don't need to go take that class. I've got all the skills that I will ever need. But I just for me, what I see is I see this is one thing to train the, the person, the mind, but it does nothing to integrate the profession.
2: So so every martial art is great for what was invented for, which in general, these are two beat up, submit, or destroy your opponent. We have a very specific mission in in healthcare. It's to escape the violent counter. So if you deploy some of these skills you may have learned in, let's say, Krav or Karate, and you beat up, submit, or destroy your opponent, well, many providers have actually done that, and they've found themselves against legal action, again, being criminally charged with with the assault. So Everything's great for what was invented for. We are extremely mission-specific. Is We're teaching you to escape the violent encounter. At no point in time are we teaching you how to, how to you know detain, restrain. We're we'll teaching you how to escape the encounter. Because that's where, where we should be at as healthcare providers. Our job is not custody and control. We work under this thing called consent of care. And in my 25 years, I've never had anybody agree to let me beat them up in, in healthcare. Just... I've never had that yet, um, so we're very specific for that. Um, Why in the street? A street fight is completely different. You know, you deploy what you want there, but in our job, we we can't be under that those those type of situations. So
1: let's let's walk through this. So I'm taking care of a patient. This patient, you know, suddenly becomes violent, uh, and I am I, I find myself in a situation where I need to get away. So let's, let's talk through that whole process of it happens and now I need to escape this violent encounter. Let's talk about the entire process from, from there forward. So the very first
2: thing we have to, to look at and realize is, is what do we determine? Is this a uncooperative patient or is this a criminal aggressor? If it's an uncooperative patient, then you still have a right to defend yourself. But that is when we would do restraints to do care for them. All right. Now, if we determine, based on their, their the things they say and their actions, that they're a criminal aggressor, they want to harm us. You've your duty to act has, has ended at that point. So, so once we determine
1: that they're a criminal aggressor, the patient provider relationship has no ended, longer exists.
2: Has ended, because we work under consent of care, right? Are they, right? If are they able to consent to give care but want to beat you up? No, it's not possible. So at that point in time, our job is to escape that violent encounter. We leave that scene. People people say, and it's taught, I, I'm going to say inappropriately, and in, in, from basic EMT school, is we start out saying, you know, you, patient safety is number one, or your provider safety is number one. You're, you are number one. That's on chapter one. Then we go to chapter two. Chapter two talks about duty to act, duty to respond, patient abandonment, etc., so, we kind of push the, the patient's safety out the door. Because as long as in class you say, scene safe, BSI, and I do my little jazz fingers, do we ever re- challenge that again to say, scene's no longer safe anymore? So, we need to, if we're going to challenge, we need to challenge that in school to give them critical thinking skills. <laughs> but if they have determined that, you know, I need to leave, there's no such thing as patient banner for this. You have every right to get to safety. And I'm going to tell you, even if you have equipment in the house, and you know you need to leave and leave the equipment because it's unsafe, leave the equipment. Here's the thing: equipment can be replaced. You want to know it can't be replaced? Our personnel. Our personnel are our most important asset in every every ambulance service there is or fire department. So that's your number one uh, goal. We'll get the the equipment back later. Now, when I say leave the patient. I don't mean go check yourself back in service go take the next call. It is we leave that scene, we get PD to respond, let them mitigate that situation, determine if we're actually needed there or not, and go from there. We'll give care when it's safe. But as soon as, as your safety is in peril, your duty
1: ceases. So uh, as an EMS administrator, one mm-hmm. of the things I would also say is, is if you – Have to escape and evade, and then retreat. Get you and your partner out of there. Yes, leave the equipment. Leave all the all the stuff that's that's there. If you're in the ambulance, have your partner if they're driving. When they get out of the ambulance, cut it off. Take the keys
2: out. One hundred percent. So one of the things now you brought that up because it's a great topic is is why are we not deploying uh, kill switches in every ambulance uh, vehicle or ignition override switches? There is literally. Uh, hundreds to a thousand ambulances a year stolen from scenes or from hospitals, things like that. Um, well, you look in New York, uh, Yardia was killed by her own ambulance in New York seven years ago. Um, the guy who ran her over, who stole her ambulance, ran her over was just uh, sentenced to life in prison without parole just last week. Um, could that, could something like this be avoided in the future by additional right to keys out? Absolutely. We should be doing that uh, on every single call. We talked about that in our program. I love that you brought that up. And and the other part of that is it's okay to abandon the ambulance. Absolutely.
1: And let them have it. Absolutely. um, And and make sure that you document as best you can what happened, the position, condition of of the person
2: when you left, and then the position and condition of them once you return. Absolutely. Uh, And documentation is the biggest thing for all this stuff. Because it also shows justification of why did you leave? You know, we need to document all, the, all of the, the, the pertinence there of what happened. And be specific. The patient did quote. They said, I'm going to F and kill you. You actually put it out there in the exact words they put there in quotation marks. You know, the fact that they were in your face, they were screaming, they were yelling, they had a gun, a knife, whatever it was. You document those things to, again, show the totality of circumstances at that time and why you made that choice to leave. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, so
1: now we've left, we've returned, we document all this, all the stuff. Uh, As an administrator, I don't know whether you have it in your policy or not. If a crew has to leave because they got assaulted, I think one of the best practices is, is for them to call for a second due to let them go back and take care of what law enforcement has had to deal with. So there's no
2: bias in the care. I, I would 100% agree with you. and I wish We we do talk about that also. The unfortunate part in today's atmosphere, sometimes we don't have a second due that can do it. You know, it's such a shortage. So what we say is, is if, if you don't have a second due, get a supervisor. If you don't have a supervisor, PD better ride with you, period. Because again, could this cause you to have a bias? Absolutely,
1: yeah.
2: uh, absolutely. And it's not that the providers are bad people. They're just now on guard to what just happened.
0: Well, let's go ahead. Let me, uh, let me ask one, because a lot of what you've discussed so far is the separation of yourself from this encounter. But there are mm-hmm. some times where that evasion part has to come after some action to subdue the patient to evade so what about when you get into those circumstances in which you may have to take action against the patient to facilitate that escape so
2: i don't believe that at any point in time in a in a physical violent encounter we should ever be subduing somebody at all our our goal is never to take custody control and that's what subduing is uh using actions uh using a physical action to create distance and space absolutely Um, that's why we teach you uh, physical skills again for everything of the average, normal attack that happens against us. We teach you how not to get punched in the face. Um, favorite quote out there, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Mike Tyson. Uh, number two is we teach you, uh, how to get out if you're being two handed choke, one handed choke, two, uh, two handed shirt grab, uh, wrist grabs, whether you're trying to be kicked, how to block for a kick. Um, a rear naked choke, whether they have knocked you to the ground, how to do basic ground defense. Uh, if you are mounted, how to escape that mount. Um, and we teach everything that is all of our normal attacks. That When we've been tracking uh, assaults for greater than 20 years now, um, every single one that uh, comes out there uh, that's made public, we read about it. We find out and we interview a lot of these people who've been assaulted and say, tell me what exactly happened. How did they grab you? How how did they do whatever they did? And we make sure that everything we're teaching works for all the things that are actually occurring. Um, Because again, it's got to work more often than not or what's the point in training for it uh, is how we look at that. So yes, if you have to to actually use physical force, because remember in in healthcare, there's only two times we'll ever use physical force. One is during self-defense and the other one is legal patient restraint. So legal patient restraint would be a uncooperative medical patient that we are, you know, placing the restraints, not for a criminal aggressor. But yes, again, you still, you document. And we actually have what we give every, every one of our clients, which is called a use of force form. So you use, you use force, uh, it's our assault response guide, uh, assault response form. And it labels out, we, we, we spell out everything they need to talk about, which is what happened? What were you called there for? Uh, what was the size of the attacker versus the size of you? Uh, were they armed? Were they with? Were they um, uh, superior numbers of people, etc. To paint the entire picture of why did you use the amount of force you used to make, make sure that it is reasonable. Once you fill out this form, this form can work as your incident report. It can be your police report to give to them. And the good thing is, is that it's one form that works for all of them uh, for all things. So you're not writing multiple multiple. Uh, forms out because your use of force is is truthfully how much force you use is based off of what we call size sex age gender skill level fatigue level uh whether there's extra number of people uh whether they have firearms etc can decide on how much force you actually end up using so it helps to label all that stuff out and you document documenting is the best thing we can always do so to, to kind of go back now, we, we've had that
1: encounter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the, the provider has uh, escaped, evaded. They've uh, The the person's been taken care of. There's one aspect of this that we really haven't talked about. Once it's over, you talk about the documentation because it's not really over. So let, let's talk about what happens with that provider afterwards.
2: So the first thing is, is as soon as it's over, and obviously, I want to just touch on one thing before we go into this part is is we need to make sure that every single assault is is reported to both our supervisors as well as law enforcement again cuz if you have a use of force and you didn't report it could that come back to you later that could be an issue but the actual event is over is it really over for the provider the answer is no is we need to talk about post assault care is the simple fact is is that we need to make sure that our providers are getting both the medical as well as mental care afterwards. So we need to understand that the, that our providers are going to be changed after a violent encounter uh, mentally. So you don't have to die to be changed forever. Um, one of the things I, I like to use as an example is, is grab a piece of paper. If you hold that piece of paper there, that clean, crisp, crisp piece of paper, that's you before you're ever assaulted. You get assaulted, we'll crinkle up that piece of paper. All right? Crinkle it all up. Is it still the same piece of paper? Actually, it's still the same piece of paper.
1: But it doesn't look the same.
2: But it's been changed forever, hasn't it? Yes. I can still write on that piece of paper, can I? I sure. can still use it, but it's never going to be the same piece of paper ever again. I can try to smooth that thing out as much as possible. It's still going to have wrinkles. So what we need to do is, no matter what the severity of the assault is, is we need to give them mental care. Now, OSHA actually recommends that providers should get free and comprehensive care following an assault. Not just the provider who has been assaulted, but anybody who witnessed it, as well as any coworkers who may be affected by it. Now, they actually use the word prompt care. So, what does prompt care mean? According to OSHA, you should be sitting down with, with uh, doing a psychological uh, consult within 24 to 48 hours of that assault. Max of seventy-two hours. Statistically, after seventy-two hours, providers will never go get help. I'm fine. I. I it's it's over with. But is it really over with? No. Twelve to twenty percent of assaulted staff members reportedly have symptoms of or full-on PTSD following the assault. Twelve to twenty percent. One of the problems is is us as healthcare providers. We don't see it in ourselves. We don't see the fact that. That we've had these changes, that we now have hyperarousal uh, around people. We're e- we're easily angered. We jump. We're jumpy. Things of that nature. The fact that that we don't give the same level of care we used to give is we don't see that in ourselves. Sometimes it takes our partners seeing that and saying to us, "Have that uncomfortable, <clears throat> hard conversation of, you know, ever since that assault happened, I've noticed that you've become, you know, kind of angry and irritable with people." Um, you're short-tempered. Uh, you seem to be on edge. Have you talked to somebody at all? And getting past that stigmatism of, you know, talk to somebody's bad. The simple fact is, is, is mental health is a good thing. It doesn't make you a worse provider. It actually makes you a better provider in the end. Statistically, we still have another issue with healthcare workers are still 10 times more likely to commit suicide than the average public. And it's because we're the worst patients ever. We're the worst patients by any means. Um, heck, we're sick. We doctor ourselves forever before until it gets too late. It's no different than the healthcare, uh, your mental health is, we need you to, to feel comfortable going to talk to somebody. Because again, if you're not willing to care for yourself, explain to me how you're really willing to care for others. And this job is hard enough in, in healthcare because we see the, the worst of the worst in people. We see death, suffering, dying on a regular basis, and we compartmentalize that until it boils over. So we shouldn't be afraid to go talk to people, get that mental health um, afterwards. There's plenty of mental health out there. Um, There's two different types of of PTSD um, uh, procedures out there. There's uh, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapies, and then there's EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. In general, with, with, with this type of mental health, within three to eight sessions, you start seeing a, a clinical significant reduction in the symptoms of PTSD. But we have to push our people to go get that help. We have to make sure, especially as administrators, as supervisors, that we are pushing them to say, hey, it's okay. We, want, we would like you to go get help. Go talk to somebody. Even if they determine that, hey, you're fine, you don't need anything, at least you talk to somebody. To me, I think this is extremely important and something that needs to be brought to the forefront. In all of our classes, ends, ends with talking about this, this uh, post-traumatic care because we want people to walk out of there understanding that number one is, is being prepared is not the same as being paranoid. We're not worried that every single person is trying to hurt us. We're prepared for the ones who do want to hurt us, which is a small group. It's no different than surgical cranks. How often do you know surgical crack in your career?
1: We've only done those about. Uh, so I've only done those three times. Okay,
2: but in twenty-seven every, years in twenty-seven years. So, but you practice for it every single year, right? Yes. For the time that you may need to do it, right? It's no different than we practice for self-defense for the time we may have to use it. <laughs> and we when we walk out of the out of the class, is we we give you access to skills videos for everything you learned in the class, so you continue to practice this stuff. Because if you don't practice it, it won't be there when you need it. And then we end with understand that again, mental health is 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 okay. It's a good thing. And we need to make sure that our that our people are being taken care of, not just physically, but mentally. These these are some things that, that I think are lacking out there as we need to talk more about that stuff. So I would encourage any EMS administrator that
1: that is listening to the podcast, or if you're, you know, a leader in your organization, make sure that you talk about this within uh, your, your supervisor's group, uh, and then talk to your employees, because whether you realize it or not, assaults are happening in your organization with patients, uh, and you need to be aware of
2: them. The last statistic out there that that came out says 61% of all assaults are never reported. Wow. 61%. That's a huge number. And one of the problems is, is there's no universal reporting system out there. So if they're not being reported, I guarantee the number you do know about is way lower than the real number. And we just have gone to the point
0: where it's part of the job. So do you all have a centralized reporting thing in Tennessee, uh, David? We do not. It's, it's done individually at each of the services themselves, uh, whatever their internal process is. Okay. So we we have a centralized you know reporting thing here in, in North Carolina
1: that Joe Zalkin has been been working on. I was hoping to get him to join us today, but uh, he had, he wasn't able to. So you know if you're in North Carolina listening, you know make sure you ask your administrators uh, about that reporting system so <clears throat> that it can be captured and then that information can be
2: can be looked at. Yeah, um, you know there's actually states that are actually making some good positive changes. For example. California passed a Cal O'Sha law uh, a few years ago, which has been kind of put on hold during COVID, but they're mandating every healthcare provider, whether you're a nurse, you're an EMT, you're a paramedic, you're a doctor. Uh, if you work in healthcare, you have to do a minimum of four hours of hands-on self-defense training. They, they've put that out there. But with that, they've also started mandatory reporting. These are good positive changes that need to be put forward everywhere just so we can start to, again, reduce the amount of assaults. Because, again, according to, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number one leading cause of lost time at work within healthcare is actually through assaults, yeah. number one, more than back injuries. So, so talking about, you know,
1: the assaults and everything else, I see a lot of agencies spending money on bulletproof vests when I don't see in the news that providers are getting shot. I uh, see in the news that they're getting assaulted. Why yes. do we not spend money training them how to escape and
2: evade violent encounters? I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I'm 100%. I back the use of bolt-resistant vests as a tool. It's not the answer. Because, again, what are most of our assaults? They're not people being shot. It is people being struck, punched, kicked, uh, stabbed. Believe it or not, a lot of our stabbings are with our own scissors. They take our own scissors and stab us with them. So if we're going to give people bolt-resistant vests, again, all that is is a tool. It doesn't make it so you can go into unsafe scenes. So if we're staging for all our unsafe scenes, where are all these assaults happening? On our supposed safe scenes, right? So the vest gives you a layer of protection. So if we're going to order vests, we need to order vests that, one, obviously have ballistic protection, but how about stab protection? There's many agencies who are ordering these vests, and, you know, they're not even thinking about stab protection with them. So if they get stabbed, it's going right through the vest. So that gives them at least some blunt protection as well as stab protection. But again, it's just a tool. How are they going to mitigate this? If you don't train your staff, staff are still going to respond. How they respond is going to be based on either training or lack thereof it. So go back to DC. You didn't train your staff how to how to properly respond. So they went back to their past experiences. So that was beat the guy up, submit him, destroy him. Instead of teaching them to, you know, again, defend yourself reasonably and escape that violent encounter. Not try to take custody and control of that person. Again,
1: we got to train in all these areas. Yeah. It, so you know, and you mentioned something about, you know, people getting stabbed with their, with their own scissors, their own knives, stuff like that. So, you know, as a, as a word to all the providers out there, you know, think about, you know, that knife that you have clipped on that pocket. You know, you're not trained in weapon retention. You know, that becomes a weapon very easily. Uh, knives have a utility. But you know, I've also seen providers that have these little knives back here with little thumb handles. Or, Look at the design intent and utility of the device. Yep. Um, and, and I hear people say, "Well, I carry it for my own self defense." They won't let me carry a weapon. Well, you're not trained in weapon retention. Uh, we're not trained to to contain and control these individuals. You know, we should uh, escape and evade, and we can do that free handed much easier than you can with a weapon in your hand.
2: Absolutely. And the other part about that is, is if you're using that that tool as your as your weapon, well one are you trained in how to properly use that as a tool or as a weapon um in in my opinion agencies should have a policy that you know of what people are allowed to carry because carrying a knife as a tool is fine as long as it, the utility of that thing is as, as a tool but if it clearly is designed as a weapon we just open up more liability because what's the chances of we are trying to intubate somebody or we're working an extrication scene, we're going through a car window, and now we have no retention of that of that tool at all. And someone else takes it and stabs you with it. Um, again, that's what happens with a lot of these things. We lay our scissors down instead of re-securing them, or we have them hanging out of our pocket or stuck in the back of our belt loop. And they grab them and get mad and they stick, them with, stick us with them. So, yeah, let's, you know, let's... Try to educate people on the reason why we have the things we have, and how to safely retain these things, these tools. Um, if you're carrying that that knife simply as as level of protection, I just think you're opening up the agency for a lot of a lot of liability.
1: And and I, I agree. Uh, and I, I have seen providers do that, and I I usually will say something to them because I feel it's my duty, whether they work for for our agency or not. Um, just to, to typically say, hey, what was the design intent for the device that you're carrying? And you know, if it's for a weapon, well, North Carolina has general statute that says that you shouldn't carry a weapon, and that that's left open to a lot of interpretation. Now, it would take the district attorney wherever they're working uh, and the county they're working to to push that issue because of the administrative code uh, and general statute, but there again, you're opening up your agency for liability uh, regardless of whether you're in North Carolina or any other state and you're listening to the podcast.
2: Yeah, well, and here's the next thing is, is do you want to be that one person that the example is made out of? You know, I hear providers say a lot, you know, I'd rather be, be uh, judged by 12 and carried by six until they're actually being judged by that 12. And then they're like, oh, this sucks. This is horrible. You know, Again, how about we learn about reasonability and best practices um, so that you have options. Deadly force isn't always the best option. There's times when deadly force is, you know, an option, but it shouldn't be our only option out there. I 100% agree with that part. So, David, anything you want
1: to add to the weapon piece?
0: Well, I and I absolutely love that last part, uh, Jason. Um I because I think in a lot of the stuff, the media that you're talking about, whether it's social media, mainstream media, is is about that deadly force component. And we we see the those aspects. And not what is done between the majority, like you said. I think you said ninety-six to ninety-eight percent of the ca- encounters we have are are uh, less than lethal encounters. And so, I, you know, my my thought process with that, especially when we're talking about weapons, is the weapons we should be arming ourselves with are those that de-escalate the situation uh, verbally or or physically. And, and I loved your correction of my uh, use of the word subdued earlier. Um, because, you know, if you do have that, uh, DA as Bradley mentioned, that is looking to make that name, you know, that the fact that you're carrying a weapon on you can get you into an escalated situation going, Hey, you, you went into this knowing that you were going to cause physical harm and that they could say that that's a premeditated act. And, you know, so very, very, uh, difficult terms in those. And so I love I love this conversation that you all have going on. I've just been sitting back here taking some notes, but that's, you know, and I love the way, Jason, you've been mentioning this, you know, arm yourself with how to talk yourself out. How do find, you know, when I'm in the classroom, I make mention, I'm like, look, I walk into this room. I know my points of egress immediately, my primary point, my secondary point and a tertiary point. If I have to go through a wall, you know, I know what, you know, what it's going to take. Uh, now, part of that's my military side, and and I, I did have some ability to have some education with a an FBI unit when we're talking about evidence collection. So we we talk to those close quarters, and you're always looking. But do you start to see people that are acting a little agitated, and they start to move behind you? Why why are you going back there? I want to reposition myself and and get into that new view and and. You know, start to learn all of those different techniques, which, which are all embedded in your program. Right. Because,
2: like I said, our program starts from the very basics of what is the problem? After that, we start talking about, uh, we call it escalation control, but same thing, de-escalation. Uh, then we we talk about, you know, approaching that scene. Uh, or sorry, sorry, pre-arrivals, approaching the actual scene, how to get out of the scene, cover versus concealment. And looking for that on a regular basis, Um, understanding how to take things like self-defense and turn it from a thought process into a thoughtless process. Because truthfully, if if you take our class and you don't practice those things, and someone gets ready to punch you in the face, you're like, oh, God, what did Jason teach me? Too late, got punched in the face. Is you have to turn self-defense from a thought process to a thoughtless process. no different than driving. We don't really think about driving anymore. We get the car, we put it in drive, we drive. A lot of times, how many times you got out of work after working a night shift? You drive home, you point your drive, we're like, holy cow, how'd I get here? Why didn't you get in an accident? Well, for one, we're all creatures of heaven. So we probably went the exact same route as we always do. Um, the simple fact is is subconsciously we were paying attention um, because we uh, have turned driving from a thought process to a thoughtless process. We got to do the exact same thing with self-defense. Self-defense is something you do every single day. On every single call, as you walk in the door, you are paying attention to your surroundings uh, and taking notes of things. Of oh, you know, I, as you said, I love that one. I walked in. This is the door I came in. But if things go south right now, is that the door I should really be going out, or is it the other door, or is it that window, or whatever it may be? Making these mental notes because when when the time of action happens. You're going to revert back to what you train for. I love it when I hear people say, don't worry, you rise to the occasion. You always revert back to your lowest level of training. However you practice it is how you'll do it in real life. You rise to your level of training. Absolutely. You'll always revert back to that muscle memory. Um, And it's amazing. We hear it all the time. Well, if it really happened, I would do this. No, you wouldn't. you do exactly how you just practiced it. That's why when we do our class, when we grab a hold of you, we make you actually work the skill. When people leave our class, you know, they're gonna have some muscle, a little bit of muscle pains from it because we make you work it over and over and over again until you not till you get it right,
0: so you don't get it wrong. One one of the uh one of the situations that we've we have used, one of my instructors, he's like, uh this law enforcement academy would come in and at the beginning they would somebody would come in and they'd pull a firearm on them. and that that officer would disarm him, safe the weapon turn around and hand it back to him. and so evidently in the field that happened and the guy cleared it and handed it back to the guy. The guy had literally just pulled the weapon on him, armed, disarmed him and he turned around and handed it back to him. I actually
2: know the story you're talking about. he was the, the guy was he would uh, do it with his wife all the time. And his, his wife would pull a gun on him. He'd practice disarming her and literally hand it back to her every time. And he was actually at a gas station and a guy pulled a gun on him. He disarmed him and handed him the gun back and the, the, guy, and the guy shot him with the gun.
0: I know exactly what story you're talking about because it's all muscle memory. It's what you've always done. I'm going to do the same. You want to know how many times I've jumped out of the uh, side of a building to practice escape from a fire? Why? You know, every year we had to we had to go on belay 25 times, come out the side of the building to test our system and and go back for uh, recertification. Why? For that one chance that you get stuck. And we had, you know, we had some individuals that did ended up with significant injuries. So we trained. Why are we not doing the same here? Right. That's what
2: we should be doing. We should be, again, train our people and then it a minimum competency of your, your defense skills. And again, most of your defense skills are not actual, you know, hands-on. It's the tactics to avoid using your techniques. Because if you, if you use our tactics we teach in the class, you're really near our techniques. And is that what we want in the first place? We don't want you going hands-on with people. We want you to avoid those, those situations altogether. And that's why our classes broke up the way it is, which is lecture, practice, lecture, practice, back and forth. During lecture, we'll give you tactics. We'll give you the techniques because we know that there's times when we're going to make mistakes. We are going to put ourselves in a position that we shouldn't have been in, but or we're just taken by surprise. So uh, we give you the tactics to be able to get out of those, uh, get out of that, or excuse me, the techniques to get out of that for that um and again it's continual practice it's not a one time you take this you take a class and you're good forever your safety is your responsibility so these are things that you need to continue to practice and employ on every single call because do we ever know which call is going to be the one that turns violent I have no idea more patients are assaulted on our routine you know fall call shortness of breath call than it is that you know uh, getting called for the for the stabbing, the gunshot wound, et cetera. So we prepare for for, for every call. Just in the case we have to use it. So it's important that that providers
1: you know learn you know the defensive tactics and <clears throat> how to statement of aid. It's important that administrators learn how to support the personnel. Uh, and in order to do that, you know I would recommend that people take the d t four EMS course. Um, and if somebody wanted more information or how to hold a course, uh, at their location or their conference,
2: how can they get in touch with you? So they can, these ways go to DT4EMS.com. So it's DT, the number four, EMS.com. Um, there's a contact us request form right on there. Put in your information. Uh, we'll generally reply back to you within 24 hours. Um, and we can discuss the things we offer. We offer a couple of different ways. We offer where we come there and we'll train your people for you, or we'll come there and do a train the trainer program. So the initial, so we talk about the E4 Fire U.S. class, that is a two-day, 16-hour course. Um, And a lot of people are like, oh my God, that's so long. Well, just in this podcast alone, we uh, uncovered how much there really is behind self-defense. It's not just about giving you a few skills. It's about giving you a whole lot of tactics within there and giving you time to practice those. Our train-the-trainer course is actually a five-day, 40-hour course because I got to take you, teach you the program, and then make you a re- resident subject matter expert in the material as well as the skills to teach other people. Um, so we we offer it both ways. They can have us just come in and train their person people, or they can do a train-the-trainer program and then have their own trainers on staff to keep putting out people. Um, we update our program at least once a year based on the things that are changing. Our society is changing regularly. Uh, and boy, we have such great new videos that are always coming out every single day of, you know, hey, these are things that have worked. These are things that we definitely shouldn't be doing. We can learn from those. Um, as well as, you know, changes in instances that have occurred. Uh, inside of our program, we actually talk about what we call forever. It's called the six Ds. We now have changed that to the seven Ds. So the the seven Ds are our most potentially violent calls, but not necessarily always criminally violent calls. Um, So things like diabetics, uh, being things like domestics, drunks, drugged, desperate. Uh, The one we just recently added was disabilities. People with autism is how do we handle and mitigate those? because we've had a a very rise in in assaults from from people with disabilities. So how do we mitigate those out? So we've added that in there. So we're always constantly updating. um, And once you have your own trainers, you always get that information so that you're always teaching the most current stuff.
1: And I'm glad you mentioned autism uh, because one of our guests this week is actually going to be talking about uh, autism and how to interact with those uh, those patients.
2: And I think that's great because, and I think that's one of the things that we really need to start talking about with our with our healthcare providers because they're misunderstood. Uh, and a lot of times, our actions are what turns them violent because we overload them with information, we get close to them, we touch them, we use terms of endearment against them, all things that that incite them. So I think that's going to be a great one to listen to. So, David, any
1: uh, final thoughts? Um...
0: So I think this is something that every EMS provider should uh, take. Um, and if not recertifying, per se, uh, with the same organization, should be trading these tactics and techniques regularly. Um, we, we can become very complacent. Um, And that's where we see all of these issues that occur, you know, um, just just a couple examples many years ago, right outside a suburb of Atlanta, you know, four fire department crew members thought they were walking into a simple chest pain call, and they walked in one after another the guy closed the door and held them at gunpoint for four hours. Uh, wanting to take his own, you know, there's, so there are so many different circumstances and that complacency is what places us in bad uh, situations. You know, in the hospital, yes, they have uh, violent encounters that occur, but when you take a look at the unpredictability of where we are going to be, you know, at at any given time, the three of us can be on shift together and we're like, Hey, where are we going to go today? And we may hit one of those, uh, but very unlikely do we know where we're going to be. We're going to be on the side of the highway. We're going to be in people's houses. We're going to be in in clubs. We're going to be out and and at any given time, as Jason mentioned, you know you can have the the grandmother or grandfather with Alzheimer's that that takes uh, takes you on or somebody else, and you need to know these things just as well as you need to know airway breathing and circulation um it needs to be in your mind you need to have the muscle memory from from having done this over and over and over again uh so that if a situation you think is fine turns around and doesn't go fine you're able to go home at the end of the shift but uh, i i want to harp on one last point that jason made if you're in one of these situations you need to be asking for help even if your supervisor or leadership is not doing that it's like this is not there. We, you know, we need to become strong enough. To go, I, I saw some stuff that I don't need to to see. Um, and as leaders in this profession, we need to be like, hey, we need to pull you off. Jason Mitchell, we we're short of people working in our field currently. And it's it's really easy to say, hey, I need you to go take another call. But this person is is <laughs> his paper has been crumbled. And uh, we need to we need to iron that out as best as we can before we send him on another call. So I love the topic uh, and continue. I know you're traveling again uh, in the morning. So Jason, I appreciate everything that you brought to us today.
2: You know, it's honored to be here, honored to talk to you guys. And the biggest thing is, is getting the word out there that you know there's training available that can help reduce and mitigate the chances of you getting injured or you having staff overreaction and injury somebody else. So I'm glad to take the time. So if you're an EMS administrator or a leader in your organization, I
1: challenge you uh, to mm-hmm. work work out the process internally, uh, reach out to, to Jason and the team at uh, DT4EMS. So your people can win in the four separate areas of basically training the mind, learn how to win in the street, train for the media, and train for the public opinion uh, of the court.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. And for everybody watching uh, or listening to this podcast right now, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget that EMS... Handoff is now releasing all of our previous episodes under our own name as well. So you can go to your favorite podcast platform there. Uh, And if you're interested in getting Bradley or myself or both of us to come to your conference, don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me at david.blevins at handoffmedia.com. And you can reach Bradley at bradley.dean at handoffmedia.com. we will be more than uh, willing to talk to you. So don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Feel free to contact us. And until next week, don't forget the value of your... EMS handoff.